stood before you. I said that I was trusting God to uh, allow me to come back and and finish the book of Acts. And uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you. I, I appreciate that, and I, I'm. That's what I intend to do. So we're going to continue in our series through the book of Acts, and we the series we call uh, "We Shall Prevail." It's uh, a book of uh, confident expectation as we live in this world as believers that we will be able to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish, and His kingdom will be glorified. And as we come back to the book of Acts, I, I feel somewhat like the young man who uh, uh, broke the world record in the 100-meter sprint. And he was being interviewed on ESPN, and he said that he had, that he had, um, he had practiced, he had trained six hours a day for four years to be able to run nine seconds. And when we come to this passage, we're looking at, a tremendous amount of material, two, two chapters, 21 and 22. And so there's a tremendous amount of material, and we also have to sprint through it to, to try to cover it and get the uh, information here. But we're going we're gonna to jump in there. And this morning I want to talk to you about uh, living in a hostile culture, the, the gospel in a hostile culture. But the good news is, remember, we shall prevail in spite of the hostility. Now, I doubt that there's anyone here today that would want to argue with the idea that our culture has become increasingly hostile to Christianity and to uh, the gospel. Uh, we have seen some dramatic shifts in our culture, and, and most of them are antithetical to Christian values. I mean, we've, we we're seeing right now the kind of the end, the death of cultural Christianity. And with that, in the last decade, we've seen a, at least a 25% decline in uh, attendance in, in church simply because people don't feel like that they have to come to church to, to be socially significant anymore. And we've also seen a thing called deconversions. Deconversions are where people fall away from their faith and they say, you know, I don't believe anymore. I, I, I used to be a follower of Christ, but I don't believe it's true anymore and I'm, I'm falling away. And we've seen some very high-profile people fall away from the faith recently. And, and when they do, they oftentimes become very critical of Christianity and the church as a justification for their turning away from the faith. We're also in, a, um, in, a, in, a, in a, an intense spiritual warfare. You know, the devil's strategy has always been to communicate to the minds of people. That's his goal always. No matter what he does in this world, his, his goal is to, create, is to speak to your mind. And so his strategy has been to capture control, dominance of the media, of education, and anything else that, that speaks to the mind of people. 
And in, in so doing, he's been able to very effectively communicate his message and to create a sense of hostility to the gospel in this culture. Uh, he has um, uh, done it through just propaganda and just repeatedly the talking points over and over that come into our minds as we hear this. The promotion of, of fornication, that's premarital sex of pornography, of abortion, of the LGBTQ uh, ideologies. Pretty much anything that is immoral, he has been propagating to our society. And the more we hear it, the more we just kind of accept it and saying, yeah, it's, it's okay. And the more we're hearing that, when someone speaks against it, those kind of things, then there's a, an incredible hostility that occurs because of that. You know, the Christian Post uh, reported this week that on the latest season of The Bachelorette, it laid bare, they say, a widespread practice among Christians. And I'll qualify that, professing Christians. What did it lay bare? The practice of premarital sex. Hannah Brown, a 24-year-old professing Christian, was on the show. She was the bachelorette looking to find her, her future husband. And what sparked controversy and really uh, nationwide discussion was when one of the one young men named Luke Parker expressed his Christian convictions for purity before marriage. And Hannah was feeling offended and judged, and she confessed on the show that she had already had premarital relations with a number of the contestants on this show. And she said, but Jesus still loves me. Now that phrase, Jesus still loves me, is, is now coined in the media and on social media, and it really means God's okay with it. That's what it means. It means God's okay with whatever I do. And it's part of the propaganda. It's part of the talking points. It's part of the idea that the enemy wants to communicate into our culture so that everywhere you look in all the media, all the shows, what is it? There's the practice of immorality. And it's simply accepted. It's, it's, it's accepted. It's, it's expected. And Hannah was feeling offended and judged, and, and, and she's not alone. Because when it comes to Christians engaging in sexual relations before marriage and being okay with it, many others are right there. According to the 2014 State of Dating in America, reported uh, by Christian Mingle and uh, J-Date, 61% of professing Christians say they have no problem with having premarital relations. And on The Bachelorette, Parker quoted um, Hebrews 13.4, which states, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And while arguing her position on this TV show, Brown used the example of the woman at the well. 
And she said, I feel so judged. I feel like you're standing there with a, with a stone over my head ready to drop it on me. And she took the position of being judged by the, the Pharisees around her. But you know what Hannah forgot? Hannah forgot that when that was over, Jesus said to that woman, go and sin no more. And she, anytime people mention sin in our culture, then it's, it's, it's looked upon as being unkind, unloving, judgmental, and even un-Jesus-like. But the reality is, you see, when, when that happens, it creates a hostility in our culture toward Christians, toward the gospel. There's no doubt that we live in a hostile culture and it's becoming increasingly more and more hostile. But that's nothing new. The Apostle Paul ministered in a hostile culture. And you see, as we've studied the life and the ministry of this great man, we have seen that as he's traveled from place to place, that everywhere he went, he encountered hostility and opposition when he preached the gospel. And he was, he was slandered, he was maligned, he was falsely accused, he was driven out of city after city, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was stoned and even left for dead. But even so, he was unwavering in his commitment to preach the gospel. And, and he's carrying out the task that the Lord has given to him. Now friends, listen, God has also given us that same task. It's called the Great Commission. And we must be relentless in our obedience to the Great Commission in spite of the hostility that we experience in our culture. Now, as we come to Acts chapter 21, verse 17, Paul has completed his third missionary journey, and he's returned to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And he, and he came for you know, fellowship with the believers there. He came to report on his work among the Gentiles. And he came to deliver a very generous offering that he had collected from the Gentile churches that he planted all over Asia Minor and Macedonia for the suffering saints, suffering from the, 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 the effects of a famine, a great famine there in Jerusalem. But trouble was already brewing. The same opposition that Paul had faced in Asia Minor, in Macedonia, with these Jews, had already preceded him to Jerusalem. They had already been there. They had already begun to circulate rumors and lies about him and his gospel. And so this marks for the Apostle Paul the end of his life as a free man. From this time on, Paul is going to be an ambassador in chains, as he calls himself in Philippians. Uh, He he no longer has total freedom to do what he wants to do. He's going to be representing Christ as a prisoner, uh, living in a hostile world. Now, uh, false rumors had been propagated about him and, and the gospel that he preached, and so... 
uh, it, there's no doubt, no doubt that he lived in this hostile culture. In our passage today, we're going to see that Paul's actions in Jerusalem demonstrate an effort to diffuse the conflict with these hostile Jews for, for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. And that is an important thing for us to learn as well. You see, as, as believers, we must seek to diffuse conflict in the hostile culture in which we live in order to be able to proclaim the gospel. Now, understand, we can't always do that because it's not all on our part. But on our part, we need to try to have the, great, the best environment possible for proclaiming the gospel. And so that's our, that's our goal. We say, well, how can we diffuse hostility in our culture? Well, as we look at the, the example of the Apostle Paul, we see two primary ways that he sought to do this. And, and the first thing that we can do to diffuse hostility is to choose the path of humility. Choose the path of humility. Uh, again, in, in, in chapter 21, beginning in verse 17, going all the way through verse 26, we see Paul demonstrating incredible humility. This great man of God uh, chose to submit himself to the elders there at the church in Jerusalem and also even to the hostile Jews that were there. Now, Paul certainly had a lot to be proud of. I mean, he could have boasted about his heritage, about his education, about his experiences, his accomplishments. He had a lot to be proud about. He could have been very egotistical. Uh, he, was a, he was a member of the elite Pharisees. He was a, a, a student of a man named Gamaliel, the, the most uh, noted uh, teacher of that day, the greatest rabbi that was known to them. And as such, it says he, he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries and his countrymen. Uh, he was zealous for the ancestors of the traditions of his ancestor. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And that was before Paul came to know Christ. After his conversion, his credentials are no less impressive. Think about it. The apostle Paul is the man who spearheaded the establishment of Gentile churches all over the known world at that time. Who had anything who could ever compare in any way to all that. Nobody's done those kind of things. And Paul had an experience. He, he, he had an encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And beyond that, there were several other occasions where Paul was given revelation directly by the Lord Jesus himself. He was a man who had experienced and been carried up into the third heaven. This was a man who did all the, the signs of an apostle. Miracles. Who else could say they did that? You see, when you look at the life of Paul, he could have said, listen, you guys, if anybody needs to be submitting here, you guys need to be submitting to me. But Paul doesn't do that. He chooses the path of humility because his purpose, his goal, is to have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to these people. And so, as believers, 
You see, we need to follow that example. And so we choose the path of humility by giving God the glory for all our service. We, we make sure that we're God-centered, that we put all the attention on God himself. Verse 17 says, After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with, with us to James, and all the elders were present. Verse 19, After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. Now, the brethren in Jerusalem gladly received Paul and his traveling companions. You see, there was a lot to rejoice about as Paul began to relate, it says, one by one, the things that God had done. Don't you love it when people come back from a mission trip and, and you get to hear about all the things that God done, did while they were gone. How God opened the doors and how God gave us the opportunity to talk to people. How people were delivered from certain situations, delivered out of sin. How people were baptized. How maybe a church was started. How people meet needs were met. How God showed his sovereignty. How God supernaturally arranged encounters, divine appointments and all those kind of things. When you start hearing about what God has done and, it, and you just rejoice. Just like the angels do in heaven when someone comes to know Christ. You know, they're celebrating. Well, certainly we should do, right? And, 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 and see, they're, they're, they're looking at all the things that God has done. If you, it's, like, it's like reading through the book of Acts and hearing all these incredible things. Boy, they were excited. And I love that. And notice who gets the credit for the accomplishments. You see, these were things which God had done. God gives, or Paul gives God all the credit, all the glory for what he did through his ministry. And notice that little phrase, through his ministry. See, Paul was just an instrument that God used. He's just a tool. It's God who has all the power. It's God who does the real spiritual work. We're just the instruments. We're just yielded and submitted to him. And he uses us. You know, Paul felt very strongly about that. You remember back in Corinth when people were, the people were arguing over who's the best preacher, who they wanted to follow? And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Well, servants through whom you believed. Even the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. You see, and that's that's all that you and I can do as well. All we can do is surrender ourselves to God and allow him to work through us to accomplish anything that's accomplished. As I stand here today, it's not about me. The only, the only real thing that happens, happens by the power of God, his spirit in your heart. It's not me. I try to be as surrendered, as, as prepared as I can be, but all I can do 
All I can do is just tell you what God says. God causes the real work in your hearts. And they, they don't mention it specifically, but they must have rejoiced when Paul shared this substantial love offering that he's collected from every church all over Macedonia, all over Asia Minor. Every church that he established, they're giving money to meet the needs of these poor Jewish people here that are suffering from a famine in, in Jerusalem. They must have been, man, this is amazing. God is lavishing upon us this incredible blessing through Gentiles. What God does. You see what God is doing? He's cutting off the hostility. He's reducing that hostility. And when it all began to register what God was doing, well, they just began glorifying God. Do you know what it means to glorify God? It simply means to understand what he's done, appreciate it, and rejoice in it. That's why we gather together, and that's why we sing songs. We call it worship, but you know what we're doing? We're just remembering what God's done. We're just remembering what he's like. We're just exalting and rejoicing in who he is. And it's not about anybody who sings or plays or any of those kind of things. It's about God. You see, true humility always takes the focus off of us and puts it on God. Uh, true humility is God-centered. And, 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 you know, anyone who succeeds in something knows that there are always people that will be jealous, that will be envious of some accomplishment or accolade or acknowledgement that someone gets. There will always be people that will be just kind of hostile toward that. And, and, you know, oh, they, I don't know how they ever got that. Boy, you know, I do a whole lot more than they do. There's just that human nature in us, see, that does that. And when we put, when we give God the glory, it only gives God the proper credit. It has a tendency to take the, the focus off of us and to reduce hostility so that it opens the way for the sharing of the gospel. And that's so important. So we choose the path of humility. We are we're careful to give God all the credit for our service. And then we, we, when we choose the path of humility, uh, we do that by making sacrificial confess- concessions. In, in verse 20, it says, And they said to him, uh, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who, are, who have believed? And they're all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Now, they no, longer, no, no sooner do they finish glorifying God than somebody says, Houston, we have a problem. There's, a, there's trouble brewing. And what's the, what's the problem? Well, some people are saying that you're preaching against the Jews, against the law, and against 
their customs, their traditions. Uh, notice this. What's the problem? Verse 21, many thousands among the Jews have believed and they are zealous for the law. What have they believed? Well, they have believed in Jesus. They have believed that Jesus is the Messiah, that his death on the cross was the sacrifice for their sin, that they no longer have to make sacrifices in order to be forgiven of their sin. But they also hold on to the, all the other traditions. They say, well, we still want to circumcise our sons. We still want to, you know, uh, celebrate the feast. Uh, we still want to take the, the ritual vows. We still want to observe the Sabbath. We still want to do all those things because that's part of our culture. That's part of where we come from. That's, that's part of us loving God. And so, you see, they're, they're, they're zealous for the law. And remember, this was a huge, huge issue in the church. We've already studied in Acts chapter 15 where they had to have this big meeting to settle the issue of what do you do with the Mosaic law and the ritual law, the ceremonial law of Moses. And and at that meeting, they decided, okay, we're not going to impose the, the ritual or the ceremonies of Judaism on the Gentiles. The only thing we're going to say is that, you know, we, we don't want them to eat meat sacrificed to idols, things that have been strangled, and to abstain from fornication. Be, be pure. But you know what they didn't do? They didn't say you can't, the Jews can't observe. And this becomes a huge issue in the church. And the, the problem was that these Jews have been told, verse 21, that you're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles. That is, these are the Jews that, have, that are in Macedonia, the ones that are dispersed, the ones that are in Asia Minor, the ones where he was going into the synagogues and teaching and establishing churches out of that. The problem, you've been telling them to forsake Moses, to, telling them not to circumcise their children, to walk according to the customs. Now, it's very important to understand that this is not true. Paul did not do that. But, they, but this is a lie that was propagated by Paul's old nemesis, the Judaizers. Judaizers were bitter enemies of the gospel. They did not believe that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. They believed that you had to observe the Mosaic law in order to be saved. And they dogged the Apostle Paul, every step of his way through his missionary journeys, and they followed him, and they caused problems, and they, they just were hostile to him. And they had already preceded him back to Jerusalem, and they were telling everybody the lies because they wanted to, they wanted to, to put him in bad light with the, the Jewish Christians there. They were hoping to stop the gospel. And listen, the phrase they have been told indicates that these reports were more than mere rumors. We get our English word catchism from the verb that is used here. A catchism is something, a way of learning by repetition over and over and over. In other words, what he's saying, what they were doing, this was propaganda. This is, this is the daily talking points. This is the thing that you say over and over and over and over and over out into the culture so that people pretty much, they hear it so long, they begin to accept it as true, even though it's not true. And by the way, keep that in mind the next year as we're inundated with political ads. 
See, it's talking points, talking heads that say the same thing, a little different, but it's the same message because that's the way the enemy works. You see, we've accepted homosexuality pretty much in the church because it's been taught to us so long it almost sounds normal now. We've heard it so many times, it's not even shocking. Used to, I would kind of cringe in the pulpit, say the word. It was a shame. Now it's pride, and people have accepted it. It's very effective, very effective. It's, the problem is, it's not true. It's a lie. And so the, the, the elders asked the question, what are we going to do about this? They evidently had a plan. Look, look at verse 23. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. Now, these elders feared a confrontation between Paul and these zealous Jews who had been lied to. And to head that off, he suggests a concession on Paul's part. Uh, A a sacrifice of truth, not for expediency, or not a sacrifice of truth for expediency, but but it's an act of self-sacrifice for the purpose of unity and understanding. Paul's going to make this concession. They reason that, that unnecessary conflict, see, could be eliminated if Paul could demonstrate to everybody that he really was not anti-Semitic, that he was not against all the, the rights or the customs of the Jews, if he particip- participated in something that was very Jewish and everybody saw it publicly, well, then everybody would know that he wasn't against the Jews. So that, that's what they're asking him to do. And so they ask him, well, you've got to pay the expenses of these four guys that have taken a Nazarite vow. At the end of that time, uh, they would... They would shave all their hair and they would offer it as a sacrifice in the temple. And they wanted Paul to pay all the expenses, which in this case was a lot. But before Paul could even do that, do you know what Paul had to do? Paul had to go through a ritual, a purification ritual himself. Why? Because he had been in Gentile lands preaching the gospel. Now, Think about this. Paul knew he wasn't unclean simply because he had been in Macedonia preaching the gospel. This is ridiculous. But you know what Paul does? He takes the path of humility. He submits to the suggestion of these leaders. He humbles himself. He pays these expenses, and he goes through the the purification ritual himself. Why? Let me tell you why. Because Paul was acting according to the principles that he held very dearly as an evangelist, as a missionary. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 20, Paul says, To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, though not being without law, the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may win those who are without law. The weak became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means win some. Paul was willing to sacrifice and concede anything that was not a compromise of the gospel in order to have the opportunity to preach the gospel to people, to win people to Christ. That was his heart. Friends, sometimes it, it takes us being willing to humble ourselves before others to be able to do that. Now, it's good that the elders reassured Paul that they were not asking him to compromise the decision that was made at the Jerusalem Council about the Gentiles. And they say in in verse 25, but concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. So Paul accepts that. And he goes in verse 26, then Paul took them in and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. See, Paul ministered in a hostile culture and he sought to diffuse the conflict by demonstrating humility. He was careful to take all the focus off of himself to give all the glory to God and he was even willing to make these concessions though it came at a great expense to him personally. See, Paul followed the example of Christ himself when it came to humility. Remember what he said in Philippians chapter 2? He says in verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind... Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Friends, that's what humility is. It's not a false humility. It's regarding other people as more important than yourself. It's being willing to give up what you want in order to give them what they really need. And he says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Where's the example of that? Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ went from being the highest possible, the holy, righteous God in heaven in glory, to being the lowest possible, to to becoming a man who was humiliated in the lowest possible way by being hung naked in shame on a cross and taking upon himself all the filthy sewage and sin of the entire world upon himself 
So that when God looked at him, even God looked at him, he had to turn his face. That's a sacrificial concession. Let me ask you, what what ways are you choosing the path of humility to proclaim the gospel? What ways? What, What do you give up so that other people can hear the gospel? What ways would you humble yourself? Do you know what we do? The truth is, this is the truth. It's not easy to hear, but this is the truth. The truth is, we exalt ourselves. And we are ashamed of the gospel. We're ashamed of Jesus. You know why I know? Because we won't speak about him. Because we don't want we don't want the reproach. We don't want the negative thoughts. We don't want the hostility that the world's going to throw at us if we talk about him. We look to our own interests. And that's just reality. In order to really talk about Jesus, you have to humble yourself. You have to be you have to be willing to be the Jesus freak in your office. You have to be willing to be lied about, misrepresented. But you know, when you make that concession, there are going to be people that will, ultimately, they're going to hear the truth and they're going to be the people that God will draw into his kingdom and save their souls. Did everybody come to Christ when Christ died on the cross? No. There's a lot didn't, right? But you know what? That what would we be? Where would we be without that sacrifice? Choose the path of humility. Give God the glory for all your service, and then be willing to make whatever concessions you need to in order to proclaim the gospel. Here's the second point: declare the testimony of your salvation. Now, I hope you have your outline today and I hope you're following along because here I want to ask you to do something. I want to take, take your pen and I want you to mark through the word share and right up above it, write the word declare. Declare the testimony of your salvation. Now, I, that's not a mistake. I put it there intentionally because I want you to not only to correct it on your paper, I want you to correct it in your thinking. Sharing the gospel is the way that we've come to speak of evangelism in American church culture. But sharing is a weak, anemic, and even an unbiblical term. It stands in sharp contrast to biblical terms such as preaching, proclaiming, declaring, reasoning, persuading, testifying, witnessing. Sharing has become popular because it sounds positive. It's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some of my treasure. Now, that's good. But it also implies, sharing also implies, I only give it to people who want it, who will receive it. Let me ask you this. Do you see the Apostle Paul 
sharing his testimony with these people? (laughs) No. Is that what the Bible says? No. What does Jesus say? He says, we, we, we sow the word on all types of soils. And, and it's not our choice. We don't decide, well, that looks like good soil. I'm throw some there. That looks receptive. I'll, I'll put it there. No, we throw it everywhere, and then we let God determine, because we can't even determine the, the, the results until the harvest. Our goal is to share it. Let God do what he will do because he has all the power anyway. We're just servants to do what he asks us to do. And, you know, the Apostle Paul was not sharing his testimony. In this case, he was proclaiming, he was declaring his testimony to a hostile mob. And they were so hostile, they wouldn't even really let him finish. And sometimes that happens. But let's consider the hostility that Paul and the gospel received against, uh, ultimately, the gospel. They were violently attacked. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd. And notice what they did. They laid hands on him. Verse 31 tells us they were seeking to kill him. Verse 32, that they were beating Paul. Verse 35 tells us the soldiers had to literally physically carry the apostle out of there to keep the, to protect him from the violence of the mob. Verse 36 says away with him, which means they wanted to kill him. So do you see Paul sharing his testimony with this crowd? No, he calls it an, a defense in, in chapter 22 and verse 1. He, he calls it, it's the word apologia. Not apology, but it's an apologetic. It's a reasoned defense. And, and the trouble began when these Jews from Asia, not the Jews from Jerusalem, but the Jews, uh, Jews from Asia, from the places where Paul had been planting churches, from those places where he had already had encounters with him, they were making these false accusations against Paul. And and literally, what do they do? Their hostility is so great, they lay hands on him. They literally want to kill him. Now, you may have had some hostility in your life, but when's the last time somebody wanted to kill you for what you were saying? When's the last time you wanted to kill someone for what they were saying? You see, it's not that far away, is it, from reality? And we're seeing this happen all, happen all over the world right now. We're seeing people literally laying hands on people because of the gospel. If you haven't looked in at what's happening in China lately, you ought to. There's incredible violence against the gospel. And you know what's happening? In spite of the gospel, these believers are declaring the gospel even to their persecutors in spite of the hostility. It is also falsely accused, verse 28. He says, crying out, men of Israel, come to our aid. 
This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, the fact that they recognized Trophimus, the Ephesian, tells us that these guys were either from Ephesus, where there was a big riot and they tried to kill Paul, or they had been there enough to, to recognize both Paul and Trophimus. They knew who he was. And so their accusation comes in two parts. Both are false. Both are based on assumptions. And first they accuse him of preaching everywhere against, it says, the Jews, the Mosaic Law, and the temple. That was not true. The problem was, was their issue with Jesus as the Messiah. They did not accept his sacrifice as sufficient. And they said, you've got to have the law. That's their problem. And they refused to accept his sacrifice. And so they said, man, we, we've got to wipe Paul out because this, what this essentially does is it destroys Judaism. So we've got to get rid of Paul. We've got to get rid of this gospel. The accusations were not true. But listen, when did that ever stop people from telling it? Right? Don't we live in a a world where people have learned to speak lies with a straight face? It happens all the time. Again, I just say keep in mind that as we're in today with political ads in the future. And the second wrong is the assumption that he brought a, a Greek into the temple. Now listen, this is the most ridiculous idea because... Josephus, the historian, tells us that the Romans had granted to the Jews the right of capital punishment for anyone who entered their temple uh, illegally. If a Jew, I mean, if a if a Gentile had walked into the past the court of the Gentiles, he would have been immediately captured, dragged out of the temple and stoned right there. there. There was no trial. It was simply, it could happen. They had the authorization to do that. And here is, there's no Greek there, but they're saying that he brought him in there, which is not true. And verse, 20, uh, verse 30 says, then all the city was provoked and the people rushed together. Isn't it amazing how someone can tell something and it's totally unverified and people will act on it like their whole life depends on it. That happens all the time in our culture. You know what I heard? That's all it takes, isn't it? And you can tell whatever lie you want to tell without verification. And they dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. And Paul was unjustly arrested. Verse 31, while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And then and when, when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, and he began asking who he was and what he had done. Now, the the, um, 
Fort Antonius was built right at the uh, base of the court of the Gentiles. It was a big tower. And the, and the Romans built it there intentionally because they could look down from this tower and see everything was happening in the temple and all around the city. And they knew if anything was going to happen with the Jews, it was going to be around some religious issue. So they were right there. As soon as things started to happen, the guy's watching. He reports to the commander. They run right down the steps, right out into the court of the Gentiles where all this is happening. And they're immediately able to rescue Paul. But in their perspective, from their perspective, what they're looking at, it looks like Paul is the problem. They're all trying to kill this guy. Now, Paul's put in chains. And the, the commander wants to know, who are you and what are you doing? Well, he tries to ascertain from the crowd what's happening, but one guy's saying one thing, these guys are saying that, somebody else is saying that. He says, all confusion. He doesn't know what's going on. So he begins to make some assumptions himself. You see, Paul is wrongly assumed. And then um, Paul, uh, or this uh, commander, he thinks that Paul is a Jewish-Egyptian who has led a rebellion against the Roman government. Now, I could tell you the long story, but I won't. But here to say this, this Egyptian Jewish person led a huge army, 30,000 men, tells Josephus tells us, against the Romans. They were planning to attack the city and to wipe out the Romans. But word got back to the Romans before they got their attack fully organized and he and the the general had set up his soldiers and they they came in and they wiped out most of these soldiers. They left a few thousand of them. This Egyptian Jew escaped along with some of his followers And, and since they didn't have an army anymore, they adopted a kind of a terrorist approach. And so they, they were called assassins. They would take these daggers and stick them into a, a, a sheath inside their uh, robes, these long robes. They would go into a place like Jerusalem during the Passover when these are huge crowds. And when everybody's all mingled together, they could take those, those swords out and they could stab pro-Roman Jews and just leave them fall, put their sword away, and just disappear into the crowd. This Roman uh, commander thinks that Paul is one of these people. He's been caught doing this. And, and so that's why he's, he thinks that's who he really is. He's making this assumption. And, you know, isn't it interesting how when, when the world looks at Christians and, and the story comes in the media, it oftentimes looks like the Christians are the bad guys, doing the wrong things, saying the wrong things, that they're... Uh, it oftentimes gets people make wrong assumptions. But Paul explains who he is, and he does it by speaking in Greek. And when he speaks in Greek, uh, the, 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 the commander's like, what, wait a minute, who are you? How did you learn how to speak Greek? He thinks he's an uneducated Jew from Egypt. And Paul tells him, no, I'm, I'm, from, I'm from Tarsus, I'm from Sicily, I'm, I'm, I'm educated and, and so the Romans are like, something's not right here. This, this, is, this is, something's really off. And he talks with Paul, and Paul, as they're taking him up the steps back into the fort, he says, can I, can I speak with the people? Can you imagine the courage 
to talk to this crowd that's just trying to kill you. And this Roman commander, he gets favor, and he says, okay, go ahead. Paul raises his hands. They're all talking out there, and, they, and he speaks in the Hebrew dialect. Now, he's not speaking Hebrew properly. He's speaking Aramaic. That was the language of the people. He's speaking that common language. And when he starts speaking, they, it's like, what? what's going on? And he begins to speak to them. Now, Paul here gives, he, he proclaims his personal testimony of his salvation. And, he, and it falls into three categories. I'm just going to introduce them to you, to you today because I want you to think about them for next week. That's your assignment. Think about these three things in your life, your testimony for next week. And the first one is this. It's identification. My life before I came to know Jesus. And as Paul begins to speak, he begins to speak to them in this way. He says, I'm a Jew. You're Jews. I'm a Jew. Identification. I was born in Tarsus, but I was brought up in this city. This is a hometown. And he says, I was educated under Gamaliel, the greatest rabbi known to Jewish people. Well, we got a lot in common. Strictly, according to the law, strictly, according to the law of our fathers, and being zealous for God, just as you are doing. In fact, you know what? Well, we got a lot in common. I was just as zealous as you are. What you're doing today, oh, I did once. He goes on. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. You can ask your own high priest. That's who I am. That's, that's who I was. What's this? Identification. And the more the identification there is, see, the, the less hostility there is. The more they're, oh, well, wait a minute. Well, wait, we've, who's this guy? Yeah. He understands. He knows. And listen, when we talk to the world, we need to try to identify with them. Now, when you talk to them with the gospel, see, you've already been changed. But you need to remember what you were like before you were changed. The things, the way they thought, the way you thought, the way they think now, the way you felt, they feel now. Identify, understand the struggles, the challenges, the adversities. You, you seek to identify with them. Yeah, I, I know what it's like to go through this. I know what it's like to deal with that. I, I've been there. You see, identification. And then there is initiation. What's initiation? Well, it's, it's how you came to know Christ. And I love that word initiation because when Paul describes how he came to know Christ, it's not, you know, I used to be a really bad sinner, but then I got really smart. I wised up. You know, I realized that I needed Jesus. I need to straighten out my life. No, it's not That's not his testimony. His testimony was, I was going my own way, living my own life, thought I was great. But then God took the initiative and came into my life and confronted me with my need of him. Notice it's God-centered. It's not man-centered. It's not what Paul figured out what he did. It's what God did. God can change your life as well. And he understands then 
what we are going through. It's initiation. God took the initiative. And then transformation. What does Paul do? He tells them about his life after Christ. What God has done since he was transformed. And you see, this is a biggie. What's the, what, is, what, does, what is the result of God transforming your life? That's what people really want to know. And Paul doesn't get very far with this. Because the hostility rises again, they cut him off. But you know what Paul's going to do? Paul's purpose was to proclaim the gospel. He gets cut off here, but his purpose is to proclaim the gospel. Our purpose in learning our testimony is that identification, showing God's initiation, transformation, and showing how God can change your life. That's our goal. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about what do you have to identify with with the world? How does your life identify with lost people? Hey, I remember when I used to run around and go to bars. I remember when I used to be in bondage to alcohol or to uh, um, tobacco or whatever it is. I, I remember when, when, when whatever it was, it was in my life. I remember when I was running around looking for acceptance and meaning through, through uh, uh, many kind of hookups with all kinds of people. I remember those things. See, identification. Think about how you came to know Christ. How did God take the initiative in your life? And how will God transform your life? Go with me. We'll be back there next week, Lord willing. Let's pray.